Hello and welcome to Little Inspirations with me, Declan Lawn. This is a podcast about the things in our lives, some big, some little, that help us get through those difficult times, the things that inspire us. So it could be anything from your favourite piece of art to a poem that just sticks in your head, a song that gives you strength, or that movie that you can just watch again and again. It's a podcast about the little building blocks of our well-being, the things that we rely on. Every week I'll be talking to a range of guests from various fields, from politics to the arts, business and academia. The show is made in conjunction with Inspire Wellbeing. My guest this week has worked throughout this pandemic as a manager in a care home. But over the last few years, she has also become a prominent campaigner for the decriminalisation and the regulation of drugs, a campaign that has come about for a very personal and a very tragic reason. Penny McCanny, you're very welcome to Little Inspirations. Thank you very much, Declan. How are you? I'm sure this has been a very uh, trying and difficult last 12 months for you, given that you've been managing a care home. What's that been like? Um, you're right. It has been, in many ways, it's been extraordinarily difficult. But on the other hand, as a team, I think it's brought us together quite a wee bit as well. We seem to have a, a single focus. Um, now, we have been... We've been very lucky. We have had no, nobody has died. Um, the residents are all and continue to be well, but it has had a dramatic impact on, on the lives of people who live in, who live in care homes. Um, I mean, my daughter described it as people being given a life sentence for a crime they didn't, they didn't commit. Um, because when you think about it a year ago, people were locked up, you know, and I, for the reasons are obvious because we have some very, very vulnerable people, but you can't help but, um be touched by the the impact that it's had on their on their lives so it's been difficult so what kind of impact has it had on them well uh, the people that i um who live in the home that i manage all have learned disabilities um and some have challenging behavior as well so imagine if you are and some quite young as well that you're not able to socialize except with the people that you live with um, that if you can't communicate, you know, what your difficulties are, you're only going to communicate them one way, which is an increase in the use of challenging behaviours. Mm. Um, obviously not seeing families and friends, um, not even being able to go, not even be able to go to a shop. Um, so it's, if we could even place ourselves all in that, mm. in that situation. And I know a lot of, a lot of people who've had to work from home and whatnot, but you can still go out, you can still go to Asking, you can still go to Tesco, you know. And do they understand the people, the yeah. residents you're dealing with, do they understand what has happened? No, they don't. Um, and even um, I have a sister who also has a learned disability, but is much more able than the people that I support. And for five months, we brought her to live with us for the exact same reason. I couldn't, it was heartbreaking to see her not understand why she couldn't even touch me if I went down to visit her. Um, but we, she went back to live because I thought, well, we must be getting to the end of it now, you know. And this was just just in the new year there. Um, and we went down to visit. And remember, she was in the house and she hugged us. And, you know, she went to the shops, did all that, went back. And they had no choice. It's not the fault of the, you know, the staff where she lived. She put her hand out the window to try and touch my hand. and Couldn't. I said, to her, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't touch you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, oh, no, it's OK, it's OK. But she genuinely didn't understand why. It's just me, you know, that I wouldn't touch her so if she couldn't understand no the people in our place can't be asked to go out on a trip and you can't take someone on a trip i, I mean so that's it, just doubly terrible isn't it because mm-hmm. at least if it was an old people's home and, and people people get it they understand what's happening yeah. but not understanding makes it twice yeah. as bad almost doesn't it yeah. Horrendous. yeah and you're wearing masks as well now mm-hmm. um and now we have to wear visors as well that's a new um guidance so imagine if you've problems hearing or you have problems interpreting information when you have no facial expression um, to look at. So it's been difficult. Now, saying that, we have worked very hard. And I say that's what's brought the staff together so much, I think, you know, is our focus on giving people a quality mm. of life, you know, maintaining that. You know, there's a lot of individual activities going on. So people are making those connections. Um, but it's still it's it's not the life we're in difficult circumstances i totally realize that as well but it is it is heartbreaking to see um 
you have been become known over the last few years as a campaigner on the decriminalization of drugs. Um, and I alluded to the fact in the introduction that there is a very, very personal reason for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? Yes. Um, in 2013, my son, my eldest son, died from an overdose of heroin. Um, now, I'll give you a wee bit of the, of the backstory as well. It, it's very, it's very hard to explain the relationship that Aidan and I had. Um, he was my first child. Um, I didn't know you could actually fall in love that much until, you know, until he was born. Um, and he was an amazing child. Um, he was brilliant and caring and compassionate. But when, but extremely brilliant. Um, and I think that was maybe one of his difficulties as well, because he was also very shy and a great deal of humility. I would say probably when he was about 14, 15, um, he took a drink like a lot of people do, particularly here. Um, and that in itself was difficult enough. Um, but as it went on, I thought there's definitely other things. There's other things going on here, you know. And at different times, I thought it was mental health problems. Um, I did think drugs, but I was so ignorant about um, illegal drugs then. Um, I didn't realize that, I certainly didn't realize we had heroin. I didn't realize that Coke was so widespread that it was, it was hardly seen as a, you know, seen as a illegal drug. But anyway, in many ways, it's not that we grew distant, but we clashed a lot more. It became a more difficult relationship. This bit was always hidden. It was, all, it was never answered as to what was, was going on. Um, Aidan, when he was, he had, he had done his degree in chemistry at Queen's and had gone to um, London to do his master's in chemistry. Um, he came back and at that point in time, I definitely thought this is a mental health problem, a serious mental health problem because he was up and he was down. But still, by the way, and amongst all this, we had like brilliant conversations. He was still fascinated by things and fascinating. I mean, Aidan could talk to you. He could talk to you about actually any subject. There was no subject that you could pick that he that he didn't know about and that he didn't embrace with passion. Um, but to cut it all short, there was definitely, and I, and I just sort of was connecting. He would go out and he would stay away and he would disappear for a couple of days. Um, and we'd had this huge row. Um, he had actually been somewhere um, for a few days and it was resolved. He had never liked it to be, no mum, you know, basically we need to be okay. And um, I said, that's, that's fine. Uh, I went down. Um, got him a couple of things when I was down and asked and I thought I'll buy him a new this is ridiculous a new sheet for his bed um just it was nice color this this seems mad but this is actually how it all happened and we came back and I said to Patty his father my husband would you just put that sheet on Aiden's bed I was talking to Aiden we were making the dinner he loved to cook as well and I see Aiden's face and he said just a minute dad but by that stage Patty had already gone up the stairs and he had lifted the mattress and underneath the mattress taped to the bottom was syringe of heroin prepared. Paddy called me up um, and it was, everything just fell into place. Um, and Aidan was a big guy. He was actually called BFG, Big Friendly Giant. He was well over six foot and he was built like a rugby player. Um, and he always, always was up. Ne never really lost weight, anything at all like that. And I said, what is that? I knew what it was, never seen it, but I knew what it was. Um, and he says, heroin. And um, and he took off at that point and he always wore um, like a long sleeve top, but I thought it was because he was a big guy and was covering up, you know, and there they were, the track marks up his arms. And um, I, I mean, I nearly lost a part of my legs. I thought, oh my goodness, this is, the worst thing that can happen because always going through my head, how will he ever get out of this? It just seemed hopeless. Um, and I said, as we were standing there, I says, what do you want? And he says, I want not to be addicted to heroin. I have tried so many times and I can't do it. Um, I says, right. 
how are you going, how will we do that? Because at this day, again, all I would think, no, it's about methadone, you know. Um, and he said, no, I don't want to be addicted to methadone either. I want to be free from addiction. So um, what we agreed to do is to go to the doctor. He would tell another person, because they did ask that, because with his friends, quite a, not even just with his friends, a large percentage of people take illegal drugs and have become more aware of it over over the last number of years. So a lot of his friends would also have taken illegal drugs, um, but none of them knew, bar one, none of them knew that he took heroin because heroin was seen as just that step step beyond. So I said, you need to tell your brother who was two years younger than him and a friend so that you have people to, to support you. So, I mean, he fully committed to the, to the process uh, did go to the doctors as well, actually, too. And the doctor did agree with them that um, methadone is not necessarily the way the way out of it because, you know, how do you do the things? How do you travel? How do you do if you're if you need a prescription for methadone? And also to imagine going for a job and you saying, well, I have to be off on a whatever day because I have to get my, you know, get my script filled. Um, so he... Um, so he worked hard at it. So he did those things. We also paid, by the way, for counselling. He went to cognitive behaviour therapy counselling. Um, because, as I said, Aidan was, he was extraordinarily complex. It's not that he, sorry, he was extraordinarily complex. He had difficulty expressing his emotions. He felt things very deeply. Um, he felt other people's tragedy very deeply as well, found it very hard to deal with. And he knew he had himself in a cycle of, well, basically what a lot of people do, medicating those, those emotions, you know, the same mm. reason why people take alcohol as well. Um, but as that, so that was the 22nd of April. As those next few months went on, in many ways I described to people, those were nearly the best months that I had in the previous eight years. The, the most difficult, but the best as well, because for the first time in all that time, there was no, there were no lies between us. There were no walls between us. Um, I did say to him, I understand that there's going, you know, it's going to be lapses because anybody, as I've said before, who tries to stop smoking knows that there's going, there are lapses. Um, and he did lapse, you know, and sometimes he was okay. But I want, this is the thing I want people to think about. To come off heroin um, and not take methadone, which whether it's effective or not, but not to take it. There's only really one drug you can take. The same as when you come off cigarettes, there's only one drug you can take, the drug you're addicted to, and you reduce the amount, nicotine, if it's cigarettes, and heroin, really. So to come off heroin, what he was doing was reducing his use of it. Um, the problem is heroin is of unknown strength um, and unknown purity. You're buying it on the streets. Um, we don't any longer in this country have heroin-assisted um, recovery. So in order to do that safely, he had to take it somewhere where he could be resuscitated, resuscitated if that happened, and that was in this house. So that was the other agreement that he would only take it here. Um, in your house? Mm -hmm. Now, the, these things are very hard to say because I, I know the reality of the situation in many ways it is illegal, you know, um, certainly to set up a situation where somebody could take drugs, which is not what I was doing. What I was saying was, I don't want you to die somewhere where I can't um, save your life. Um, so he took it, he took it here. Um, he had to buy it in the street. There's nowhere else to, to buy it. He went to cognitive behavior therapy. In fact, if that, what we did, we put together a treatment plan that he maybe would have had if he had gone, you know, to rehab, um, perhaps. But what we did, what we were able to do, we were able to talk for the first time, really. I never understood what prohibition. I thought this is just an excuse people are, people use who, who use illegal drugs. I couldn't see the connection between alcohol and um, coke or heroin. Um, I saw no relationship with them. And yet, um, alcohol is an extremely dangerous drug, costs this country far more money than um, all those other drugs do. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, Aidan felt it 
was his most difficult drug because it was the one that opened the gateway to to other things you know I I, I wanted to ask you about that because you said earlier when he was 14 or 15 he'd started Mm -hmm. to take a drink and and that was difficult and you'd also mentioned that he was to some extent introverted or shy do do you think that these substances from alcohol through the spectrum to heroin just helped him deal with with that absolutely absolutely um he he was definitely very shy he would um and i I know what that's like because i'm i'm shy as well and i certainly know that taking a drink makes you a lot less shy when you walk into a social situation um what he found in that there is no doubt about it he had the confidence to um he had the confidence to talk to other people to share ideas um and say lots of other people took um illegal drugs as well and I wouldn't just say, Declan, it was about that. I think Aidan being a, a scientist in many ways, it was wanting to experience other things, you know. And I think some drug, some illegal drugs certainly give you that, um, you know, that ability to look into your stuff more. I mean, someone said to me, um, someone else who, who used coke and whatnot and said, People don't take drugs because they make them feel bad. They, they take them because they make them feel good. So whilst on one hand, I do think like a lot of people, he was trying to use it to cope with life, particularly alcohol, I think, but he was also using it. And I've always tried to be honest about this because it allowed him in some ways to experience the world, to actually explore it himself. Because of Aidan's nature, say a very scientific you know, approach to things, somebody else telling him something wouldn't have been sufficient. He would want to, wanted to have experienced it himself. Heroin, he described to me, and I think other people have described it similarly, but I thought this was very, you know, appropriate. Um, he said, it's like when you get up to the toilet in the cold night um, and you get back into bed and you wrap the blanket around yourself. He said, that's what heroin is like. Um, and I thought that's a really good, because anybody has grown up in my generation when we didn't have central heating, you know, that really describes it. It's like somebody wrapping their arms around you. Um, now it's very, it's very sad for me to actually think of that, you know, that, you know, he felt obviously alone, you know. Um, so yes, I think there's the two things. There is, it made, you, made life a little bit better. He said, and again, I'm sure other people have said it too, when you're taking heroin, you only have one problem is where do you get heroin from? Mm-hmm. Um, when you or off it then everything is a is a problem and is it true what this i mean does the pleasure disappear at some point are you was he simply taking it to avoid withdrawal yeah. Or, or, yeah. or are you still getting this that same sense of comfort or i think it is a mixture between the between the two um yeah you do it's not the same he said the first time you took it you really went mm, you know And then it took, you know, another couple of times before you actually experience that slip into that, um, that state, you know, but what, particularly when he was coming off it, what it was, was the, the pain of coming off it as well, which would have pushed him towards taking it again. Mm. Um, Nothing apparently is like those first hits, you know, those first few times you take it or whatever. Um, And I think they they do call it that, you know, that you're basically chasing Mm. after that again. Mm um so yeah both things were true i think that yeah when life got difficult and you were able to get into that that wonderful sleep that they talk about then um yeah certainly there was that as well there was both things you know there's so much i i want to ask you about but i think what it's interesting that we're having this conversation now at this time Mm. because just empirically looking around me at friends and acquaintances and social media and stuff we are entering, I think, like a storm of addiction. Basically, mm-hmm. this last year has been from you mm-hmm. know, people hitting the wine every night mm-hmm. to uh, cannabis. To it's mm-hmm. just it just seems that this is all under the surface, but it's going to come mm-hmm. out over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Everyone has been looking for their own version of mm-hmm. the warm blanket mm-hmm. or the comfort mm-hmm. or the. It might be an expensive bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Or it might be something, you know, illegal. Mm-hmm. But it's all the same thing that everyone is chasing. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. That's it. Some people get it on a script. Some people get it in 
Sainsbury's and some people have to buy it on the street, but I agree with you this last year. Um, the increase I'm sure in, in the use of alcohol as a drug alone must be astronomical. We've shored up a lot of problems for ourselves for ourselves um, for the incoming years in terms of people's mental health and uh, well-being. Let, let me talk to you about this. So this situation you find yourself in where Aidan mm -hmm. is taking heroin under your roof and he, he's trying to take it in smaller and smaller doses to yeah. wean himself off it, right? But why wasn't he able to go to a treatment program? Um, a lot of it is a lot of it is a well, a whole lot of letters of the alphabet here. Stigma is one to admit that you have an addiction to heroin. Yeah. Um, addiction to any illegal drug is not treated in the same way as you have an addiction to even prescription drugs, which some of them are basically the, the same thing, mm. or even alcohol, which still has some stigma, but it's fairly well accepted that, you know, um, you can be open about it. You go to work and say, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a problem with alcohol, you know, I have to attend AA or whatever. I'm doing. So there is a stigma issue, a massive stigma issue. I mean, you only have to think about when I say, and I don't like this terminology, but I, I'll use it. When I say heroin addict, I bet you, you visualize, you know, some poor guy lying in the street, you know, mm. underweight and with a needle yeah. in his arm and homeless yeah. and all that. Um, and in fact, I'm going off track a little bit here. I drove past and I sometimes do this when I go to Balamina and I say to friends, even the car and friends who know the whole story. And I say, just a matter of interest, where do you think Aiden died? And they're all always a little bit embarrassed at first, but basically they come up with that picture that I've just described. Mm. And I drive past and I go, that house. And it's a middle-class house, you know, lovely house, you know, detached house. Um, because in their minds, that's that's what they see as well. So that stigma is attached to that as well. And you're talking in many ways about young people too. He did not want people to know. He didn't even want people who also took other legal drugs to know that he had a problem with, with heroin. But even if you had, getting into a treatment program is very difficult as well. Getting even counselling is difficult. We were in a fortunate position that we could pay for it, but lots of people are not in that position. Mm -hmm. um, and to, there is actually, you know, the jury is out. Different things work for different people, okay? Just the same way AA works for some people, cutting back works for some people. Going to rehab where you basically come off all, all substances isn't necessarily the path for everyone mm -hmm. and there is evidence that things like as they say heroin assisted um recovery works but it, you weren't going to get that in rehab in this in this country so there are lots of reasons for it and yes going for a job in the future you're 25 you're looking for work um and because he has it was science was his degree he could have been looking for work maybe you know with civil service or, you know, with companies that are not going to look well on somebody who, who is an ex, say, hit those words, heroin addict. So, so the shame, shame is a big thing. But was this, was what he did to some extent successful? I mean, did he get off it? He did. He came, so yes, he, the way to work it out is basically to bring your dose down and down and down and this is one of the things I do talk about as well it was part of my journey of understanding um what the penny drop moments as I as I call them because I said in why does that dose that you're going to take why is that bigger physically bigger than yesterday's dose or whatever and he always used to take a trial dose um before taking the larger one and he said mum a 500 milligram tablet paracetamol is always 500 milligrams of paracetamol but that little bag of heroin can be any strength and that as I described to people is a penny drop moment and that's one of the things in terms of regulation of drugs that's what makes your bottle of vodka safe is that you're not getting you know a 90% alcohol bottle of vodka and the next day you're getting 20% and the next day you're getting 40% you will always get the same percentage and it's written on the on the bottle mm -hmm. and as I say that that bag of heroin whatever you're taking out of it one day could kill you and the next day wouldn't even be enough for you to get get a hit that's what regulation is about so he was bringing down his dose and actually on the um 23rd of june um we were actually in Derry for my birthday and he had stopped 
the week before that. Now, Declan, we knew that there would be lapses, but and when I say stopped, I mean basically he had got over his addiction, if that makes sense. And I know that in my heart, um, because just the weekend, the weekend actually before we left, um, he was out in the garden and he had stressed and he was a giant of a guy, you know, um, hands behind his head looking down the garden and he'd come out and he said, that's the first time in five years that I've seen the world like that. And then he had, and we had a load of trees at the bottom of our garden. And he said, and he started talking then about, um, you know, light energy being changed into chemical energy through chlorophyll. That was, that was the way he used to talk. Um, and he went, he went on into the, the next room and I went around and put my arms around my city and that's what it's about. It's about you being able to see the wonder of small things again. And that's when I believe he no longer was addicted because he could see the other side. He had come to the other side. Does that make any sense? You know, um, he didn't have a, he, he saw another purpose to life or he could see the good that was in life again and knew himself that he could overcome it. Now, you know, there was a, there were possibilities. Um, but. And so they, what, what, what happened then? So that was, that conversation there actually was in July. So it was after, after more or less he, he had stopped. Um, and my other son and daughter and I, well, Aidan was going to go too. We were talking about taking a break. And we've been through it, it'd been, it'd been difficult. But Aidan said, look, I've missed some time off work. I want to, I don't want to go. Paddy, my husband, his father stayed here with him. And the his brother and sister and I went to Barcelona for a week. And on the 27th of July, um, he had texted me to ask me, he was going to go to Balamina. And I have to say the word Balamina sent cold shivers through me because I knew what it meant back then. It was mm. by and large the only place that you could buy heroin. Yeah. Um, but his friend also lived there too. Um, and I said, okay, because he said it's his father's birthday two days later, what will I get him? So we'd had a wee bit of a joke. And he, I said, my last message to him was, how are you today? Which he never answered. But now sometimes Aidan would be, would be like that. And he, we went out that evening. We were in Barcelona. Went out that evening, had dinner and whatnot. And we were coming back to the apartment. And the apartment overlooked a beautiful square with a restaurant and whatnot. And, and my phone rang. It was, it was very noisy. And um, I, so I had to step into the apartment to hear the message. Again, I do describe this to people because I literally had my foot on the first step of the apartment and Patty answered and he said, Penny, I'm sorry, Aidan's dead. Um, now, he, what other way was he going to say it? You know, but my, um, my life stopped on, with my foot on that step. But Megan was just behind me, his sister, and she was only 16 then too. And um, I just said to her, I just said to Patty, okay, I'll ring you back. I went out and told Matty who collapsed in the street to his brother. Um, and he had gone to Balamina. Um, he had bought heroin. Gone for it, he'd actually gone for his dinner first, had had a drink, had gone back, had bought heroin. He actually had his bag on to come home. He was in his friend's house. And he must have um, nodded off. You know, he had taken the heroin, had apparently recovered, but had obviously gone back into, um, you know, a second um, thing of it. And he aspirated um, and died. So that was um, when we sat in the room in um, Barcelona, waiting for a flight to come back the next morning. I actually, I sat at the table and I said, I won't be a dead man walking. You know, I will um, speak for him in a way because, sorry, I have no shame. You know, um, I'm proud that he's my son, um, but I'm going to tell a story. Um, and I'm going to say all the things that he said. I'm going to talk about prohibition and regulation. Um, and I'm going to have people think that bottle of vodka is no different. The only thing is I can drink my bottle of vodka safely. Um, and I don't want other 
parents and I don't want other young people to think that they have nobody to talk to. Um, so it was a decision I made then. And I did from, from I came back, even at his funeral, I spoke at his funeral and said it wasn't his death or it wasn't the manner of his death, but it was a tragedy. It was his, the fact that he was gone was the tragedy. I've never been ashamed. I've, when people, I, I made, somebody said to me at the beginning, what will I tell people? In other words, what story were we going to? I said, you tell him he died of an accidental overdose of heroin. So that was. Um, it's been about seven, eight, or mm -hmm. almost coming up on eight years. Mm -hmm. um, all of us here are parents, and I expect mm -hmm. many who are not would understand that losing a child is the worst thing that can mm -hmm. happen. Uh, to you, much worse than anything happening to you or your spouse. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose this is a very, sounds like a kind of simple and, you know, very short question. And I, I don't really know what the answer might possibly be, but how do you begin to deal with that? You know, how do you keep going? Um, at the very beginning, and you're right, Daglan, I... I actually thought at the beginning, because my mother died when I was a teenager, my father had died. I actually buried him the day before Megan was born and that same year, my brother killed himself. And I thought, okay, well, I, I've dealt with all those things. You know, there's something in you that, you know, this terrible bit will come to an end and then we'll, I actually did not realize that it, I physically thought I was going to die. You know, I didn't think that it would be possible to feel the way I felt and to continue to live, you know. Um, it is the un most unbelievable pain. Um, I had to, it, it is the things that I had to do. What I had to do was I got up, I got up in the morning. I, the Monday after the funeral, I went to work. I kept, I went to work every day. At night, I lay on the settee for one full year. I constantly had the television on, um, law and order. I went no many um, series I went through and through and through. I never switched it off when I, as I was trying to sleep. I kept earphones in. I did everything possible to give myself the time to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. I, um, until the terrible pain, you know, and it takes a long, long, long time. But that bit where you think, you know, it's not your first thought. The second you wake up in the middle of the night that you have to get the earphones jammed back in again to get your head to a place where you're not thinking all the time. Mm. Um, so that was my, that's how I did it. I did it by one foot in front of the other. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And talking, you know, and being open about it and talking about Aiden. And it actually was a couple of years into it then somebody tagged me I'd had done an article and things I also the next year I found I wanted to do things every year you know that would allow people to remember Aidan's name to you know to have them think about you know uh, use of drugs and things like that there um so for instance two years later shaved my head then the next year did a walk you know this sort of thing um and then I'd done an article and actually a journalist then tagged me into an article about anyone's child. It was actually a mother who'd lost both her sons to heroin overdoses seven years apart. And somebody had made a negative comment in the, you know, at the bottom, it was a Facebook post, which never read those things if you've, um, because of horrendous things that people write. But I then put in a comment, a supportive comment, and said I'd had a similar situation, you know, I'd actually was at Aiden's grave and this elderly woman come up and says oh who's this I explain she said what happened and I said he died of a overdose of heroin she says ah self-inflicted mm -hmm. uh-huh but um so then I was contacted then by by Rose the person in anyone's child and she explained about this group and what they were doing and it was Aiden's message exactly it was about what is Killing people is prohibition. What is criminalizing it is prohibition. Take the criminals out of it. Regulate mm. it like you regulate any other drug. Give people the help that they need to get. Look at things like heroin-assisted treatment. Look at um, safe injecting facilities. So that if some, no one has ever died in the world in a safe injection mm. facility. And look at the amount of people who die of overdoses. 
but also uh, it was this was a debate for a couple of decades, wasn't it, in terms of you know could this work or does it actually just encourage hard drug use? Mm-hmm. And then Portugal did mm-hmm. what they did, and mm-hmm. the results have just been astonishing. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at them this morning before we mm-hmm. met. There have been uh, there's now half the number of annual deaths in Portugal. Mm-hmm from heroin that we have in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and they have 10 times more people mm-hmm. than we do. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there is, Portugal has just completely proved mm-hmm. if you ever needed proof that mm-hmm. decriminalization and regulation work, yeah. give yeah. lives. Mm-hmm. There's, there are fewer addicts now than there were 10 years ago. Yep. It's astonishing. Yep. It is astonishing. And what's astonishing is then why, why are we not changing? We're entrenched in, you know, this, a moralizing attitude nearly it's like nobody can actually take mm. the you know to put their head up and go oh, well hold on we're saying let's follow the evidence instead of drugs are bad let's not let's not mm. do them you know it, isn't it because it's a political thing mm-hmm. Polit- politicians are in power for a relatively short period four mm-hmm. or five years if they're lucky and um, and they're up against the daily mail and the daily express mm-hmm. and the kind of moralizing press mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And there's just not enough political capital in it to do what needs to yeah. be done. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And that just, yeah, that's a hundred percent it. And that's because you still have, or people have this perception of people who use drugs are these others. They're nothing to do with us. People need, and that's why we say anyone's child it could be your child. It, it was my child. It's anyone's. It needs to, if it matters to the public enough that they're going to vote for you, then politicians will stand up and be counted, but they're not. You're quite right. It doesn't, you know, it's an unimportant issue really for them. It's mm. a death of people who in a lot of people's heads are, well, exactly what that woman said, self-inflicted. In other words, lives of no value anyway. And what anyone's child does is puts a face to to that person, um, you know, to someone like Aiden. Aiden is the face of someone who has, you know, an issue that needs to be dealt with. Being Ian himself is in the middle of that maelstrom and he formed these views. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting to me because I, I had thought maybe that you had come to these conclusions after the fact, but he himself was thinking yeah. about prohibition regulation. Like yeah. what you're saying there about the bottle of vodka versus the, the bag of heroin is incredible, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it, what that means is anyone who's taken heroin and they're taking it for many, many deep and complex mm-hmm. reasons, mm-hmm. is basically playing Russian roulette every time, yeah. every time they do it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Um, and, and again, too, I know that that's people say, well, then why do it if it's dangerous? But, but we all have done dangerous things. I'm sure that lots of people drive their car too fast, you know, knowing that it is dangerous. In fact, they endanger other people's lives as well. You know, we take a drink. Like, why do we take a drink? I smoked for years, you know. Mm. Smoking is extremely dangerous as well. But telling you just not to do it is, is, not, is not the answer to mm. it. Um, and in fact, if anything, if tomorrow we went back to a prohibition on alcohol, would you become a criminal? You know, I don't know whether you take a drink or not. I do. And mm. I would probably go, well, who's the government to tell me that I can't have a glass of wine? But in many ways, that's exactly the same. So what we would then do, uh, as happened in America, what we would then do is put alcohol back into the hands of criminals. And you would be getting your alcohol at any at unknown strength and un- unknown quality. Um, and that's that's what it's, you know, and that's, I say, with the penny drop moments for me. The, the other thing that I um, noticed, I, I used to work in the BBC um, normal avenue and my walk home took me up the dublin road for years and years and years and i noticed over a period of between five and maybe ten years on my walk home every evening and then increasingly on my walk in every morning the the amount of people who were clearly uh homeless and addicted to heroin and the amount of dealing that was going on in front of Mm -hmm. me in that one stretch Mm -hmm. Mm Like massively increased, mm-hmm. massively increased. Now I haven't I haven't done that work obviously recently in the pandemic, and but it's 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 a problem that is, it's just I don't want to say exponentially increasing. I don't know about that, but but it's massively increasing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely has, and I actually don't, I don't entirely know the reasons for it. Some may be that, you know, yeah, availability might be might be one of the things. Um, 
whether that is the case or not, the, the gangs, you know, the people, the actual criminals who are involved in, in this, it's easier to bring in um, different drugs and whatnot. Um, it makes money. It certainly does because um, unlike your bottle of vodka, it's not capped. The price isn't, isn't capped, you know, or it's not, it's not a specific amount. So there's a lot of complexities there. Um, there is no, again, there is no doubt. I think amongst a lot of young people, um, Coke, for instance, is, I think you can, if you take Coke, for instance, you won't need as much alcohol. So mm. going to a party, basically there's a bit of alcohol and there's a lot of Coke and, and other, mm. other illegal drugs. Um, so it's much more acceptable. And I think I saw something actually wasn't Boris Johnson going to, they were looking at the middle class people who were, who were taking Coke. Yeah. So Coke is now becoming acceptable. But, but this is interesting, though, isn't it? Because this is, this is the kind of core of the argument about legalization and or decriminalization of drugs. Because parents would worry, if you decriminalize cocaine, that, that, that those kind of children who, who have that in them, who, who, who want to experiment with, say, alcohol or vaping or cigarettes or weed or whatever, that inevitably, if it's decriminalized or legalized, uh, that that a certain cohort of kids are going to move on to that easier yeah. than, than they would, you know, going and try and buy it on the street. And so the big argument against it is, look, the situation we have isn't ideal, but we can't legalize hard drugs because people are going to take the message. Kids, teenagers are going to take the message that, well, that's fine. A line of Coke's just like having a yeah. kind of Guinness. What, what do you make of that argument? Uh, and I can actually, I can understand exactly what they're what they're saying. Um, however, regulation, which is not is not a free for all. In fact, regulations, a drug like heroin would be under very tight controls, you yes. know. But at this moment in time, it's a free for all. I mean, what you're saying there, exactly that uh, of young people being able to go and buy buy coke, um, mm. it's normalised in a lot of young people's minds anyway. Mm. Again, I didn't know these things, but f- to have coke delivered to your house is a phone call and it's delivered like a pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, so a 14-year-old can have Coke delivered to their house but can't go to Asda and buy a bottle of mm-hmm. vodka. Mm-hmm. So it is a free-for-all now. Regulation would bring that under control. So somebody somebody couldn't um, deliver. Somebody, If I if I had a 14-year-old and they, they rang down and asked, could you deliver me a bottle of vodka? No, you, you can't do that. It's actually, it's not just against the law. It's not possible. You go down to ASDA, you have to show your ID. Um, but you, that's how easy you can buy illegal drugs. So, so would you be talking about a world in which um, if you were an adult, you could go to like a dispensary or a pharmacy? Uh, I know that in, in California now, for example, they have um, cannabis dispensaries where you can mm-hmm. go, a bit yeah. like a chemist shop, you can, go and buy, uh, you can go and buy that. You'd be talking about a situation where an adult could go to some kind of dispensary and get cocaine. The, there's different levels. There are different levels of regulation. I suppose ultimately that if I still, there still is a bit of me because I have seen the worst effects of illegal drugs. I still have to say to myself, but were these, if these drugs had been properly regulated and were of the right strength, the terrible consequences would not have been there. So I, I still have the bit of the mother there, but the reality is we all have access to a very dangerous drug now. So regulating cocaine, so we don't buy 90% alcohol now. We can't because yeah. it, it is a certain amount. So yes, in theory, not necessarily buying, maybe it would have to be on script. Heroin certainly would, it's mm. very likely it would have to be on script, but at least when you got it, you mm. got a safe amount. You see, that, that's the thing that I personally find like irrefutable about your argument, because the problem now when kids or adults or whoever, I guess, are buying cocaine from a dealer is they don't know what's in it either. No. You know, no. And you, you have constant situations every few months in Belfast where there's this kind of bad batch of whatever cocaine mm-hmm. or heroin or ecstasy or whatever comes in. And you've got people dropping going unconscious uh, all over the city, some of them dying. And that it's very hard to argue that if you had a situation where these things were, you know, of a certain degree of purity and measurable, that the people who wanted to do that kind of thing would do it. Because the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, 
most people don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I say too. If heroin were legal tomorrow, if you could buy it, yeah, would you take heroin? No, neither would I. No. no. So that argument in itself is not, I, I mean, smoking is legal, but I, yeah. I don't smoke anymore. Yes. You yeah. know. But it seems that what we need is a fundamental sea change in our attitude, mm-hmm. more growing up sea change and, you know, akin to the one in Portugal, which again, crucially, has not led to more addiction amongst young mm-hmm. people or any, anyone. Addiction rates are lower than they were. Mm-hmm. Death rates have plunged like many, many fold. And that that seems to be a kind of a, that, that, that seems to be what we should be aiming for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, an evidence-based approach, absolutely. Well, um, look, I, I have been suppo- supposed to be asking you throughout this podcast about your little inspirations, and I haven't asked you about any because the conversation has been yeah. so both moving and also interesting. But what are the things since that day seven years ago that you have tried to rely on or that have in, in some sense helped you or, or, or that help you now? Are, the, are there particular things you go to? The, the, the biggest one is the purpose fight. The purpose is in actually doing this, you know, in talking and talking about Aiden and talking about regulation. Um, it's the hardest thing to do, but it's what it's what keeps me going through the year, you know, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. The things that are, um, not long after Aidan died, I'd read this article about um, male DNA being found in the brains of, of women. And one of the theories put forward was that um, cells cross the placental barrier. Um, and it's the, it's the DNA of, of the child, of the baby. Um, and in my mind, Aidan, and I have no religious belief, but part of Aidan is still in me. And I feel whatever I do, I, I am taking him with me. Um, and he is, it seems he is alive in the world still, not Aiden as Aiden, but there's part of him still breathing in the world. That is what gives me strength, maybe even to do things like this, say, it's not you, you're doing it for Aiden, you're speaking for Aiden. That would be a big, a big one. Um, the year before Aidan died, I'd actually gone to India and that actually was Aidan's plan that year. That was the one thing he talked about too, was when he was off heroin, he would be able to go to, to India and I, he was actually going to go that year. Um, and I've been back, except obviously COVID knocked that in the head this year. Um, I've been back four times since then. And that is like, um, uh, it is like a break for me. You know, again, it's something, not, not a holiday break, but just from all the the emotions and the pressures, you know. Do you go to the same place? I go um, a couple of times. I've gone by myself. Other times I went with with friends. No, sort of travelled about a bit. Although I always um, started and ended in the same two places. You know, people that I've stayed with before. So, but I've travelled. I've travelled about Kerala and up to Delhi and whatnot too. Um, so I kind of feel like it's a it's a pilgrimage for him as well. Wow amazing um the other is in actually this is the thing in india too when you're standing in kerala is obviously on the on the coast and you're standing that's actually the arabian ocean mm-hmm. which and then next is africa if you think it like that but mm-hmm. basically you just have a horizon of sea and it can be oh it's a very strong current like it will it will pull you right into the sea um and can be stormy it can be I mean, the water can be absolutely churned up, but there's something about standing at the edge of the ocean. Donegal is exactly the same feeling. Um, stand at the end of the ocean, you can see nothing except for the sea, raging sea, but this raging bit that was within you is being controlled. That standing there gives me strength as well. Um, my things. Friendship too, you know, I've been very, very lucky to have friends that still when I when I send them a text message and go, I'm so sad, they just, they don't try to make me better, they just go, I understand, you know, um, they don't try to fix me. Um, yes, anyone's child. I have, I'm not a very um, creative person, you know, um, 
and I don't necessarily like music for its own sake. Uh, I've, I've got to an age now where I can actually admit to that. But lyrics touch me, same as, you know, you get a quote out of a book. And there is a song, it's Hurt uh, by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, wow, amazing song. Mm-hmm. I'd heard it actually originally, obviously, the Johnny Cash version of it. Mm-hmm. But I'd put it in. And I, and I thought the Johnny Cash version, I thought, well, you know, it's sad and it's somebody at the end of their life and all. Mm-hmm. And I put it in and I heard that version. It is so powerful. Um and it is obviously, it was when I heard that line about the needle goes right in, yeah. about the heroin as well. And it not just in a way says what Aiden says, it, mm-hmm. it says my story too, you know, basically that feeling that I let him down, you know, that I had too much pride that I didn't listen um, and that he he was suffering, you know. Um, and I those are obviously very very strong emotions for you to sit down with yourself and go well you were this and you were that and you were that but mm-hmm. playing that when I feel the pain is at its worst you know connects it to me but but allows me not to actually fall into an abyss so if I was in the car and I thought this is going to be a really hard day I actually put that on um I say because the the power and the emotion in it um bizarrely gives me strength to to keep going i think i'm going to go and listen to mm-hmm. that song after this podcast i mean that that just that, that list of um of inspirations i think is the most interesting and, and eloquent one i've heard in this whole series and i'll just go over it again that the campaign that you're you're doing and anyone's child the the charity and also um this this theory, the sense of the of the the baby, the child's some of the child mm-hmm. cells migrating through the placenta into the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, your regular pilgrimages, as you call them, to India and standing on the coast at Kerala, mm-hmm. looking at the Arabian Sea, and indeed the same thing in Donegal, looking at the Atlantic, mm-hmm. and fr- your f- various friendships with close friends, and also the the song "Hurt" by Trent Reznor. Um, mm-hmm. An incredible list of inspirations there and I have to say like I just I've been extremely um like moved and challenged by this whole podcast I really like I, I can't thank you enough for sharing all of this with me it's it's been um it's been a really incredible experience for me so thank you thank you Jesse. and I, I I mean um yeah I'm sure he would be very proud of the work you're doing and I hope I hope it bears fruit it has to at some point bear fruit at some point yeah yeah, yeah yeah there's definitely a change you can there's a change in the world people are listening yeah mm-hmm. well hopefully this can be a small part of well, people thank you your message. Yeah, very much thank you Declan Penny uh thank you very much uh it's been a pleasure to hear your little inspirations thank you Declan <laughs>